Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. In today's episode, Chloe and I talk with our friend and respected colleague, Adam Meekins, physiotherapist extraordinaire and co-host with Greg Lehman of the NAF Physio podcast. With Meeks, we talk about the friction within the physiotherapy profession, what the way forward is towards a more evidence-based approach, and then we get into talking about his recent experience with back injury and him rehabbing his injury in public on social media and the love and hate that that has attracted. And finally, we talk about how to build rapport and a therapeutic alliance in an online consult. All of that coming up. Hey, Chloe. <laughs> hey, Raph. Hey, Adam. Hey, Adam. Hey, guys. Hey, Pilates elephants. How are you guys doing? We're, uh, what, how are you, Raph? Let me guess. Yeah. Hold on. All right. Well, go on. I, I reckon you're fucking awesome. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty predictable, Adam. <laughs> it's his it's his usual state of being, which is an awesome state of being to be in. It's a pretty good go to yeah. position to be in if you're always fucking awesome all the time. That's 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 a good place to be. Not always. You know, I get cranky sometimes. I was cranky earlier today. Whoa. But, yeah. Then, you? you know, then then I get over it and I'm fucking awesome again. <laughs> How are you, Chloe? <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm stoked. I got Adam here. So it's Adam where you probably you may or may not know, but we in Melbourne are in lockdown and we've been in lockdown for I've what actually year is lost it again. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually lost count now. I'm guessing what I don't know, is this our fifth week or something? Uh, it's a long I don't time. Know. I think we're starting to measure it in months now, not weeks. Yeah. Let's put it that way. So look, we've been in lockdown. We've also got a curfew. So we're not allowed out between nine PM and five AM in the morning. So it's been, yeah, it's been quite the situation and I've just been really craving actually putting on some structured clothes. I've got jeans on and I washed and blow dried my hair and popped some lippy on. I was like, oh, I get to hang out with my mates on a Friday night is how this felt. So you've you've absolutely got me in a totally different mood than I've been in this week, uh, Meek. So I'm just super stoked to see you. So thanks for brightening up my lockdown my lockdown, basically, uh, and giving me a Friday night out with mates. <laughs> ah, bless you. I'm, I'm glad yeah. to be of assistance, Bunsen, to help you out during your difficult time. Sounds pretty rough over there. We're quite fortunate in the UK. We're out of lockdown at the moment. So we, uh, we've done pretty well with the vaccinations and uh, it's got about 80% of the population vaccinated. So we're under no restrictions at all now, which is uh, it's really refreshing. But... How it will go in the future is going to be uh, anybody's guess because uh, the infection rates are skyrocketing. Okay, so you can you can just go out about your business, no mask, no checking in, no nothing. Minimal. I mean, there are some stipulations still in certain places. So in hospitals and stuff, you still have to mask up. 
Uh, but social distancing and masking in various other places have been yeah waived now. You don't have to. It's voluntary if you want to. Uh, yeah, everything's opened back up. Pubs, bars, nightclubs, everything. Wow. But infections are going up. Yeah, but they've decoupled it from the hospital admissions. So that's what the vaccines have right. done. So we're seeing, you know, anywhere between 20 to 50,000 infections a day. Um, but we're getting probably minimal hospital admissions from those infections. So there's a lot of people just getting mild to no symptoms now, which is what the vaccines were obviously designed to do. Far out, Raf. They're high. No Isn't it funny? Because I so to. To give you some comparison, um, we are locked down and I think today, well, today in Melbourne got up to 200, which is pretty high, but we got locked down at 17. Infections 17 or hospital inf admissions? Seven, 17 infections. <laughs> not, not, sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but that just... Uh, I know, right? It's we, such we, a we, different we haven't, uh, world. I don't mm. think since this shit show started, I don't think we've had a day where we haven't had probably less than a thousand infections a day. It's wow. been, it, infections have been always high. And um, the main thing has always been the, the hospital admissions and the death rates. They're the things that we've been focusing, not so much the infection rates. So I yeah. think the governments have decided, you know, we're not going to stop this. It's here, it's everywhere. What mm. we have to do is decouple the side effects of this virus is causing, which is, you know, horrendous illnesses and mortality rates so that's where they've got on the vaccinations and said that we're not going to control covid we're going to have to live with it we're just going to have to manage it and that's where the vaccines mm. are kicked in but what's going to happen guys i think what's happening now although they have decoupled it the infection rates are relatively low for us but when it starts going up into the hundreds of thousands of infected which i think it will do once the schools reopen because they think the kids are the major transmitters of it now um, we might see, again, those hospital remission rates go back up just because of the statistics of hundreds of thousands of people being infected means even still, if it's low, you're still going to get a lot of people being admitted to hospital. Wow, those numbers are blowing my mind, Raph. It's so it's so different to over here, isn't it? It's we, I think we're going to have to do the same. I think that's what the government's going to start to look at. They're basically now looking at getting us to certain percentages of vaccination and once that happens, we open up and, yeah. I'm getting my first shot uh, Sunday. Ah, your 5G so. will improve then. I know. I'm so excited. Thank God. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. So, yay. <laughs> so, Adam, tell us, to, you know, I, I have a feeling, I've got a feeling that most of our listeners will know who you are. And Raf and I actually, we talk about you a lot on the podcast you get you get name dropped quite a bit. Uh, you're definitely you're definitely a fave, and uh, I've spoken about you a lot to my students of late. I always speak to my students about you, but particularly lately with your uh, acute back injury that you've had and that journey that you're sharing on on your social media. So I think a lot of people are going to know who you are, but let them know those that don't. Who okay. are you, Meeks? Who are you? Who are you? Who am I? <laughs> what am I about? Where am Go I wherever from? you want with that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, in a nutshell, I'm a physiotherapist uh, and that's what I tend to describe myself to most people. Um, I've been a physio for near over 20 years now, just over 20 years now. Um, haven't always been a physiotherapist. So before I became a physiotherapist, I did my first degree in sports science. 
Um, and before I did my first degree in sports science, I was in the military for a few years as well. So don't let these youthful looks fool you. I've been around the block a few times. Um, wow. So that, that in a nutshell is my background. So I come from, a, say, a military background, a sports science background, personal training, health and fitness background, and then went into physiotherapy. And I've been there, let's say, for the last 20 years. And I've got a specialist interest in the upper limb, so in the shoulder is where I spend most of my time now, and I have sort of been focusing in that sort of area probably for around 10 years, and uh, that's me in a nutshell. I'm a bit of a knobhead on social media, as most people will know as well, so that's sometimes what I also tell people is that I've, <laughs> over the years somehow... Do you think knob, knobhead's the right word? Like when I think of knobhead, I think of someone that I... For me, a knobhead is someone I don't want to, I wouldn't want to learn. You know, it's, I, I could name some knobheads. <laughs> to me, you're not a knobhead. To me, you are, a, like, for me, you are a source of um, education, insight, uh, humor. You make it fun. Like, I love your posts. Um, I love the way you communicate. I don't know. I'm one of your biggest raving fans, so maybe you know I'm not going to sit here and say you, you might be biased. Yeah, you might be. You might be a little bit. I might biased. be a bit biased. Yeah, just just a little bit bunt. So I, I, uh, I, I think I'm like Marmite. That's how I describe people. Oh, Vegemite that you guys have over there. You know, people either love Vegemite and they spread it on everything and they eat spoonfuls of it out of the jar, and then there's people who can't get anywhere fucking close to it. You know, even the smell of it puts them off. So. I think I'm a bit like that. I'm I'm yin and yang. I'm black and white to people. There doesn't seem to be anywhere in the middle, which I suppose right. has some positives and some negatives. But no, I, I use the term knobhead as a term of infe- uh, of affection. Infection. Okay. <laughs> Infection as well. <laughs> but I, I use that term as, say, to be, you know, positive as, as well as negative. Um, but, okay. Yeah. I, I, I have got this, say, uh, reputation for being annoying upsetting and perhaps the other side of the coin as well as you just said bunts on that on social media with my views and opinions around thing and a lot of people don't like the way i say stuff and do stuff because they think it's unprofessional because i try to break down those hierarchical barriers and try to have some fun and put some humor and humanity into fucking physiotherapy which i think it's just solely lacking and it does my head in physios sitting up on their Little high horses acting all prim and proper really, really winds me up. And uh, I'm saying, come on, get down, you know, get onto the same level as people that you're working with and you're talking with right. and all that sort of shit. And, and physios hate that. They just really do not like their little ivory towers being attacked. And uh, that's where I sometimes get myself in trouble or hot water with them. The, the fall but- of the dinosaurs. <laughs> Yeah, that that very much. That was about oh, what, five, six years ago now. That very much started <laughs> off a little bit of a kickback and a discussion around that. But yeah, that sort of stuff, you know, it's all all lot of pearl clutching, you know. Oh, oh my God, you can't do that. You can't say that. How unprofessional. And I'm like, get over yourselves. Fucking hell. But there we go. That's me. Well, um. This is going to be an awesome convo. Yeah, this is going to be. It already is. Um, <laughs> it's best Friday night so, I've had in a long time. <laughs> so, Meeks, um, you know, I, I fancy that most of our listeners are Pilates instructors and my experience talking with a lot of Pilates instructors is that, you know, generally we in the Pilates world look at physio 
physiotherapists as kind of a, a united, you know, homogeneous, um, you know, group, um, all of, you know, and, and, and we almost have kind of a reverence for physios that we think that, you know, if a physio has said, you know, if someone comes into your Pilates session and then you say, hey, let's do squats, and they say, oh, no, the physio told me not to squat. You're like, oh, okay, we'll never squat again. <laughs> you know, we better Yeah, the physio, not. Told me, the physio told me not to lift my arm literally yeah. above my um, head. I'm and, like, and not to have a go at physios no, no, no. Um, yet. Um, I'll, I'll leave that to you in a minute. But um, uh, because everything, everything actually, you know, prefacing this, everything I'm about to say applies equally to exercise physiologists, which is my – profession and probably equally to, we could say to osteopaths and chiropractors and GPs and, you know, every other allied health profession. Um, but yes, yeah, so Pilates instructors tend to see physiotherapists as kind of a, 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 a homogeneous, like a unified single, you know, mind, hive mind collective who all, all have the same training, the same beliefs, the same skills and, and are, you know, definitely, I hear the words, literally the phrase higher up the totem pole, um, you know, more times than I, I can count. Um, and yet from where you sit, you know, it's quite a different picture. <laughs> so yeah, give us, give us, give us the meek's eye view. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like that. So I, I, I think, yeah, like you said, you know, we don't want to tarnish everybody with the same brush and we don't want to just pick on the physio profession, but let's stick with it because that's what we're talking about. And I am, but as you said, there are good, bad, ugly, intelligent not so intelligent individuals in this profession and um, I don't think you can tar us all with the same brush either positively or negatively so I do very much come across a lot of outdated misinformed beliefs and practices in physiotherapy um, and it is quite prevalent and quite pervasive the outdated stuff so again I, I haven't got any hard and fast figures but i'm just going to pull this out in the air and say i would probably say about 75 percent of all physio information given to people is out of date irrelevant not best practice and i would probably say around 20 percent is okay and current and can get away with and i would probably say five percent is top quality on the money real good stuff so again, I think if you are a Pilates instructor and you are hearing a patient reporting back about what a physiotherapist said, just recognize that say a good two thirds, three quarters of that is probably not really the correct right information that they're probably getting from a physiotherapist. And it is a big problem. And it is something that I think, you know, we've got to try and do better as a profession. And I have been railing about this for years, if not decades about how the physiotherapy profession is stuck in this oh it's a way we've always done it it's you know we can't change it because of historical means we've got to respect the past we've got to respect the gurus and the people that came up with these ideas and i'm like yeah but i get that but we have got to also move forward where at the moment we're just standing still and sometimes regressing and going backwards and uh, trying to change clinical practice is really really tough i mean there's been numerous papers that have shown you know once a piece of evidence or research shows a practice needs to change or a treatment needs to change it can take you know up to 17 20 years before it's actually start to be seen in practice um, and that's the situation we're currently in you know there is lots of new information coming through lots of new science and research about 
challenging what we thought we knew was the cause of people's pains and problems and what is the best way to manage it and fix it. Um, but yet this information is not trickling down through two clinicians and getting to patients. So they are still, you know, a good 20 or so years out of date. So when I hear people saying you shouldn't squat down because that will damage your knees or you shouldn't do a certain type of movement because that's going to be harmful, all this stuff has been disproven. It's been shown to be not accurate or correct, yet it's still being explained and taught because of this lack of knowledge and ignorance that is still pervasive in healthcare and physiotherapy. So yeah, mm. I would say to Pilates instructors, do not automatically think that whatever a physiotherapist has said is correct, accurate, or in date, because the vast majority of it will not be. Mm. And I had a little bit more opportunity than you did to prepare for this conversation. So I just happened to have a couple little studies here. Um, and I reckon I agree with you 75%. Um, I've got a study here from Bernhardson et al. from 2015 um, called Clinical Practice in Line with Evidence, a survey among primary care physiotherapists in Western Sweden. And they said that um, uh, only 43%, oh, sorry, they said that 82% of physios still give advice on posture, which is, you know, <laughs> it's it, that's really a what the fuck moment for yeah. me because <laughs> yeah it's it's and, crazy, it's and, crazy because I, I, you know the reason the reason they give this sort of shit advice is because it's it's easy and it's plausible and it's easy mm. to to discuss these things than it is to actually try to discuss the uncertainty and the complexity around people have pain um so it's much much easier to blame one sole factor that is probably unrelated or completely unrelated, that has some biological plausibility that gets somebody to, to buy into the reason why they've got pain rather than try to explain the uncertainty and you know the, the nuance and the complexity around pain. So clinicians very right. much tend to label things as problematic very simplistically when actually it's due to you know a numerous amount of complexity and, and, and yeah nuance. But that takes effort and time to actually explain to people. Um, and so they tend to say, yeah, it's because you've got hunched shoulders. That's why you've got back pain. Mm. Yeah. Nothing yeah. to do with the fact that you've got, you know, a pretty stressful life at the moment during lockdown. You're not moving as much. You're eating a shitty diet. Uh, you're getting three hours of fucking sleep a night. You're smoking like a fucking chimney. Um, and all these other factors that have got far more impact on their bloody back pain rather than their hunched shoulders. But they're difficult conversations mm. to have, so physios avoid them. And it's a huge problem in all healthcare. It drives me crazy. Whenever I teach and I go around to, to students and physios and say, just do a quick SNAPS assessment. And a SNAPS assessment is a nice little acronym I use to ask um, anybody who comes to see you about their smoking, their nutrition, their alcohol, their physical activity, and their stress and their sleep. It's a simple little acronym. It's a fact-finding mission just to find out some basic lifestyle factors for that person coming to see you. And a lot, the amount of physios that turn around to me and say, well, that's not my job. I'm not, I'm not here to talk about their smoking or their nutrition or their alcohol. I'm like, of course you fucking are. You're dealing with somebody about their health. <laughs> you know? You've got to have these conversations. You've got to talk to them about how these things that they're doing in the lifestyle is impacting their current situations at the moment. But physios just don't see that as part of their job. That's, oh, that's not me. That's for a nutritionist to do. And they always talk about, oh, you know, I've got to stay in my lane. What do you mean mm. you've got to stay in your fucking lane? That person's health and wellness is your fucking lane. 
You need to be managing them as a person and looking at them holistically, not just focusing on their fucking hunched shoulders. As you see, I'm getting a bit annoyed now at it. You've wound me up. You've wound me up, and you've let me go. <laughs> it's usually me that's really yeah. wound up. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying I, um, listening to just, someone else wound up for can once. I just, um, I just want to take this opportunity just to self-flagellate a little bit for the exercise science uh, profession. Um, just because I really, I, I do want to agree with you, Meeks, that there are, you know, there are fantastic physios, and I've, there are some physios, including yourself. And, and a bunch of others um, who I've got the, nothing but the highest respect for. Um, and like in Pilates and in bricklaying and dentistry, there are, you know, good, bad and shitty people. Um, and uh, so, so <laughs> here are some stats from uh, about physical activity guidelines. Um, and uh, so people who are the following people, this is from a couple of studies from 2015 <laughs> uh, and 2013. Um and what they found was 59% of personal trainers are unable to identify physical activity guidelines. <laughs> 56% of exercise physiologists, which is a fucking four-year degree in physical activity guidelines. <laughs> and hold on, hold on. 53% of people with a PhD in exercise science unable to identify physical activity guidelines. And this is according to Zenco at L 2015 and Dunlop at L 2013. We'll post the links to all these in the show notes. What did they but, say um, about physios? Well, nothing complimentary, let me tell you. But we didn't talk <laughs> we did we didn't look at the physios in relation to exercise guidelines. But um so well, I, I know a paper that, that did. If you want if yeah. you want a reference yeah. Anne Lowe, yeah. back in 2017, did a survey of UK physios asking them about the World Health Organization guidelines, and um, it was over 70% were unable, in physiotherapy, over 70% were unable to quote the World Health Organization physical activity oh guidelines, and less and, than 40% were actually doing them. And so for those of you listening, right, if you, if you think like, oh, I don't know the World Health Organization guidelines, well, let me just tell you what they are. It's 150 minutes of moderate intensity cardio a week, so basically brisk walking, 30 minutes a day, five days a week, plus two to three resistance training sessions a week, right? It's not fucking that hard to remember. <laughs> Basic information. It's like remembering a bloody, what's the average resting heart rate or what's your average blood pressure? It's basic bloody information that all healthcare professionals should know. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so anyway, all right, so... Uh, so exercise physiologists are not exempt <laughs> from this <laughs> conversation, but it just happens to be the case that in the research world, there's a lot more literature on physiotherapists because physiotherapy is a bigger profession than say exercise physiology or osteopathy or whatever it might be. So there's lots of literature on physiotherapists. So we see, you know, we, we, we dig out all the bugs from under the rocks in the physiotherapy profession, but you know, there's plenty of bugs under rocks in every, every profession. But um, so yeah, I've got some, other stats here. So uh, according to Childs et al. 2015, only 43% of physios follow guidelines for low back pain. Uh, Bernardson, uh, 2015 again, 26, 29, so 30 to 95% of physios, so depending on uh, country, uh, use non-evidence-based treatments. Um, 46% of physios, according to Zadro 2019, 46% um, of physios don't follow guidelines. They think clinical experience is worth more than evidence. 
like it's I mean, and and again this is physios but we could equally say the same of GPs we could say the same of exercise scientists and physiologists we could say it of any profession but you're a physio and we need to talk about physios so yeah so what's your response to all of that yeah that that one about you know using clinical experience and not evidence is it's one of these questions and discussions i have quite a lot and it there, there is some nuance here there is some shades of gray so again I, I i very much do understand that our clinical experience about working out what you think you know is going to work better for the person in front of you rather than what's been shown in a research trial is something for us to consider and this is where clinical skills and expertise do come in so you know there are many you know randomized control trials out there that do show superiority of one type of treatment that will be better for a certain type of pathology but in a certain type of population so, you know, the classic one, let's say a tendinopathy, you know, that we see all this research about certain tendinopathies, but the populations tend to be young, fit, healthy, active individuals, and they don't tend to be the, the people that come regularly into clinics. It may not be your older, more sedentary individual with lots of comorbidities. And so we just get this sometimes skewed view that the research says we've got to do these eccentric type of exercises to try and help somebody with this tendinopathy. But then we don't actually recognize that the person in front of us doesn't actually match up with what they used in a research trial to show a superiority effect mm. of that exercise. And then a lot of physios, I think, you know, they wonder why individuals are not improving with what they what the research says they should be doing improving. So you've got this older mm. individual, sedentary, he's got all these other comorbidities you know they're saying well the, the research says i need to do these exercises and these exercises are not bloody working so why why isn't it not working and the reason being is because it's two different populations and they haven't addressed the other factors in this other population that's contributing to their tendinopathy and this goes back again to what i said about you know checking these other lifestyle factors because tendons are not only caused to get pissed off and irritated by mechanical loading factors tendons can also get pissed off because of yeah, health-related conditions, you know, the intrinsic factors as well. And if you as a clinician haven't got the skills and the experience and the broader reading around that to recognize that, you are only going to be following so-called guideline practice and not making much of an improvement on this population group because you're going to also have to try to modify and address some of these other factors that are contributing to the tendinopathy as well as give them these eccentric type-based exercises to help as well. So this is where absolutely, you know, clinical experience and skills, as well as a broader reading around an area, is essential. And guidelines sometimes don't reflect that. So this is where I do understand sometimes there is this little bit of disparity. But, you know, a good clinician, a well-read clinician should be able to use their experience and recognize, OK, these research trials don't actually fit this person that's in front of me at the moment. There's other factors here I've got to address and look at as well. Can I push back a little bit on on some of that? Um, so by understanding, and I'm not right across the tendinopathy research, but I've, I've read a, a few things that have come out recently showing that basically, yeah, eccentrics, we thought they were the silver bullet for a little bit, but it seems like pretty much any any kind of resistance training is beneficial, <laughs> equally beneficial for, for tendons. Um, and, 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 all right, so maybe that's not a pushback, that's just a clarification, but... Um, all right, so to your point about like, oh, well, the, you know, the, the research says, you know, do this protocol and I'm doing it and they're not getting better. Well, I think that's a that's kind of 
to me, that's a little bit of a straw man because like, or may, I mean, maybe people actually think that, I don't know. Um, but it's like, well, when we look at all of these studies, like you never see a hundred percent of people get better in any intervention, you know? So we always see this like, you know, 30% of people who got no treatment got better, you know, and 40% of people who got the treatment got better. So we go, oh, the treatment's better than doing nothing, right? But still 60% of them didn't get better, you know? So just because you do the treatment exactly as per the protocol doesn't mean they're going to get better because, of course, there are other factors, genetics, inflammation, age, obesity, blah, 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 sleep, stress, expectation, therapist, you know, relationship, all of that stuff, right? And there are so many moving parts in this solar system, in this galaxy that is this person, you know, and, and they're the orbit of the therapist and all of that stuff. So it's like, there's no way we can control for all of that. And, and you know, biology is inherently messy. And so it's like, all right, so but even guidelines, so you could follow guidelines to the absolute letter. I mean, you could be, you know, Peter O'Sullivan, Chartan Vibifersum, you could be, you know, the highest possible expression of, of guideline-based care, you know, and still have people not get better. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and, and again, you know, my point here is not that that doesn't happen. My point is, is that, you know, you've got to use your clinical experience to recognise when that is happening and what might be the other factors that are contributing it. And where I see, again, the it going wrong is clinicians then start to think, well, I need to do some other type of shitty treatment to try and help things I along. I need to give some dry needling. Exactly. Or <laughs> so they instead of recognising these other lifestyle factors, health-related factors that need to be addressed and monitored or improved, they start thinking you've got to add some other shittier treatment to help somebody. And then they start going down this bloody wormhole of, you say, dry needling, myofascial release, tendon scraping, fire cupping, Fucking whatever, you know, <laughs> reiki fucking leeches or whatever. Fire or, cupping. Yeah, all that crap. Oh, that that big, I've never had that. That sounds awesome. <laughs> so that's that's where it all starts going wrong, you know, with the expertise, you know, thinking, oh, you know, I've got all these other little tools in my toolbox and I'm going to use this and this is what's going to get mm. that person better um, because they're not responding to the guideline-based treatment. I'm like, no, 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 no. That shit still is fucking not doing anything. You're missing the bigger picture. You're missing the bigger point. These sometimes I say guidelines do not take into account these other related factors that could be contributing. And that's that's a part to blame with the research and the guidelines, I think, as well. They do, particularly in physiotherapies, particularly in musculoskeletal physiotherapy, very much tend to just focus on the mechanical loading um, treatments rather than looking at bigger lifestyle factors, which are a major, major driver of musculoskeletal pains and problems. You know, mm. you know it's, it, what, these need need improving in guidelines. What guidelines are you looking at? Because if I think of like, I'm thinking of like the Lynn et al. paper that came out in 2019 that was the, you know, 11 consistent recommendations from high quality clinical practice guidelines. And uh, which was just an overview of basically, you know, high quality guidelines from around the world in different body parts. They had some uh, osteoarthritis ones, some low back pain ones, some shoulder ones can't remember you know what they were but basically and you know i've read a f quite a few other clinical guidelines and they all say address psychosocial factors you know do patient-centered care all of that stuff what gu what guidelines are you talking about so i'm talking mainly about tendinopathy guidelines so the main tendinopathy uh. physio guidelines we get are based around exercise prescription there's very and, uh. and even, i'm not going to say they're not recommended about lifestyle factors in there but it's normally a little bit of subtext at the bottom 
<sighs> it's normally this little last point at the bottom rather than sort of being emphasized more importantly in, in the guideline. And there is also no direction about how clinicians can try to address these things. As again, healthcare clinicians, I was given absolutely naffle training about how to interact somebody who's got poor lifestyle factors going on, poor beliefs, poor expectations, and how to actually recognize them and how to address them. I've had to learn this all myself through, you know, post-education, postgraduate education. Clinicians are just not given the skills and the information and the training to be able to feel confident and comfortable to recognize and manage and address these factors as well. So again, they may put them in the guidelines at the bottom, but clinicians are like, I've got no fucking idea what that is, what I do with it or how I do with it. So I'm just going to stick with my fire cupping and eccentric exercise. Because <laughs> that's, that's all I get taught. That's all I get uh, trained to do. <laughs> fire um, cupping, you are making that up, are you? No, fire cupping's <laughs> a thing. What there's the a, fuck is fire cupping? I'm having I feel, some I feel like you're... troll on bloody Instagram who's a, who's a Melbourne-based physiotherapist, actually. That's why I'm, I'm talking about it. Who, on his Instagram, just keeps coming at me all the time for my posts. And all I see on his posts is him claiming he's a specialist fire cupper. And I'm like, what the fuck's fire cupping? It's where they actually put fire inside the cup to heat it up. that creates well, a if vacuum. You say fire, if you say fire cupper ten times really fast. Cool. <laughs> Wow, he's a fire cupper. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps okay, it, it is a, a, an acronym for something else. Fire cupper. <laughs> hey, um, Meeks, you know, what you said about, um, you know, you don't get taught all of that biopsychosocial stuff. So basically how to address those, those other, you know, lifestyle and contextual factors that are, at the moment, as far as we know, the bigger predictors of people's outcomes in, in chronic musculoskeletal pain, things like sleep and stress and diet and all of that other stuff. Um, you know, my personal anecdotal experience is younger practitioners seem to be more across that. So people have just come out of uni, say, two years ago, are telling me that they learned all of that stuff in uni. And I don't, I don't have any research on physios, but I've got something on doctors that says this is a study from uh, 2000 from Norcini et al., that uh, looked at um, admissions for people who had myocardial infarction, so heart attacks, to uh, they looked at a bunch of hospital teaching hospitals in the United States and they 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 just looked at data of people who were admitted and then they looked at who the, the, the treating physician was and what they found was a 0.5% mortality increase, increase per year since the physician graduated medical school. So basically the more experienced your doctor is, the less likely you are to live through a heart attack at one of these prestigious, you know, teaching hospitals. So what that suggests to me is like, well, people, you know, ossify, like they, they basically, they're like, they're, they're caught in, a fly caught in amber, you know. So they, they finished their med school in 1986 and they're still practicing with what they learned in 1986, although it's now it's 2020, you know. But the people who learned in, and graduated last year, they've got the biopsychosocial stuff, you know, a lot more, sort of ingrained so yeah what do you have a view on that yeah no it's a great point and uh, i think i see it in all sorts of uh, healthcare professions as well similarly um you know a lot of people say you know how many years experience have you got and i said you know 20 years but really i'd class myself as only having one year's experience because every every year you should be trying to update your experience so i i think that's a better way to try and frame yourself as, a, as an old school clinician somebody that has graduated you know 10 20 30 years ago try to actually only 
you know, see yourself as having one year's experience. And then next year you need to update yourself and you need to keep constantly updating yourself. But yeah, no, I, I agree. I think a lot of clinicians, they do get into these little comfort zones. You know, you graduate, you know a lot of information, you start to apply that information, you start to see some results and you start to sit back and relax and rest on your laurels and then start to recognize when you are out of date, unfortunately. But yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I think, as I say, we see it in lots of uh, other you know walks of life. The more experience you have doesn't mean naturally the better results you get. And I see it in physiotherapy, the young, keen, eager physios come out and they are probably getting better results and um, effects than some of the older ones that have got 20, 30 years experience. Yeah, absolutely. I know if I'm uh, if I'm being wheeled in on the gurney after having a heart attack, I'm with my last dying breath. I'm going to ask for the <laughs> the newest doctor. Yeah. Where's your junior SHO? Where's your junior SHO? Get that cranky old fucking consultant away from me. I don't want to have nothing to do. With me. <laughs> I also think there's a bit of the halo, particularly in physiotherapy. There's that bit of halo effect. So the halo effect is obviously us human beings tend to listen more to be you know more attentive to those individuals that are younger more attractive and better looking as well so i think there's a definite element when it comes to clinicians and outcomes with the halo effect for sure the halo effect <laughs> the shinier so, your halo um, is the better you're looking then they'll see the the better the effects and the outcomes tend to be shiny today. that must explain your success oh obviously <laughs> <laughs> Migs, I'd love to talk about, you know, same where, I mean, really, it's just an expansion of exactly what we're just talking about now, but your recent experience, your, I guess by recent, I mean, current experience with uh, having hurt your back and the thing that's really stood out for me about that as it's been unfolding on social media is... A, all the just shit out of date advice that's just being thrown at you, like with just, I'm like, I feel like writing to each of them and you know that Adam's a physio, don't you? He knows his stuff. It's okay. Like it's like, but more so has been the nasty trolling and the these people who say that they're physios, who say that they're healthcare professionals, who's, you know, and I would hope that they're in a profession like physio or whatnot because they actually fucking care about people, right? And they are caring human beings who want to help people get better. And when I see them acting like they have been to you and, you know, I'm thinking like, I don't want to give him any airtime, but you know post and where all his goonies came on in but um <laughs> anywho and the goonies that came on to that me looking in on that okay and I don't know if they don't realize that people are looking in and 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 we are clearly seeing their behavior and I'm looking at these people and I'm just thinking this is abhorrent behavior coming from people that are in the health profession like abhorrent and I, it took every willpower mix. It was one night and it was really late. And I'd just seen that thread. And, oh, you know, and I've already had a run in with and been called a silly little girl basically by he who shall not be named. And I was like, you know, if I go, if I go back in and, and start something up because I'm just going to get absolutely 
decimated. And you know, when you don't want to kick that off when you're meant to already be asleep, it just winds you up. But Meeks, I was there and this was me. Like I was literally like, no, Chloe, don't do it. Don't, oh, fuck, I was so wound up for you, right? And I was not just wound up for you. I was just wound up for the profession. I'm thinking, you bastards are meant to care. And this is not showing that you care whatsoever. And I would not want anyone to go and see them, you know, in a health care perspective, like care, care was like yeah. not in there. Anyway, I've been quite, that, that got me really um, wound up. How's your, how's your, this is, I mean, this is your, this is not my experience. This is just me looking in. Yeah. How's, how's that been feeling for you? Maybe those that don't know, um, you might want to let our listeners know what happened recently for you. Okay. Yeah. So um, I injured my back four weeks ago doing some deadlifts and uh, I actually caught the incident on camera because I was filming my my deadlift left technique as well as trying to post it on the gram to show how impressive and strong I am like I do like to occasionally. Yeah, everybody like and I was uh, I was doing a two and a half times body weight deadlift, which I'd been working up to slowly and gradually after a 16 week program that I'd been following. Uh, and this was just out of coming out of lockdown. So we'd been in lockdown for the previous four months where I hadn't been able to do any head, heavy deadlifts for four months. Uh, I'd only been able to do home training with a maximum of 80 kgs. So I'd been using these four months back in the gym, slowly building back up to baseline sort of levels, two and a half times body weight deadlift is what I was aiming for. I'd done two previous sessions of that in the previous two weeks um, without any incidents. So I was doing three RMs at two and a half times body weight and feeling good. And this sort of this was my last week, week 16 of a 16-week program before I was going to have a rest and deload week. And this was actually my last session, my last exercise that I was doing for the 16-week program. And yeah, on my second rep, uh, I felt my back go, searing pain, dropped me to the floor, couldn't move for five minutes. You know, I got the old cold sweats, couldn't stand up straight, panicking, thinking the worst, all that sort of stuff going through my head. And then I've had them um, sort of four weeks of raging back pain with radicular pain and radiculopathy as well. So I've now got sensory deficits down the front of my left leg uh, from the knee down to the shin. Uh, and as well as a quad weakness deficit of well of about 50%, which indicates to me that, you know, it's probably most likely to be an L4 nerve root that's being compressed by a disc probably herniation. Uh, and that's what happened. And so because I caught it on camera, um, I thought... I'm going to use this as a, a little learning, teaching, social media experiment. And so I, I documented uh, obviously what happened. And then I've been doing daily updates, giving progress updates about what's going through my head, what I'm doing about it, what my assessment is, what the evidence is saying about how to manage these things. And I've just been doing that for the last sort of two or three weeks every day. I've, I'm not doing it on a daily basis now because it's sort of stabilized. So I'm probably going to do weekly updates going forward from now on. But yeah, I've been really, really surprised, interested, frustrated, annoyed and pissed off with the feedback that I've got. So first thing I'm going to say is it hasn't all been bad. In fact, quite a lot of it has been positive feedback. And, you know, I've been really humbled and flattered by a lot of people who have reached out and given me messages and comments of support and kind words and stuff. And it has been really, really useful. And that's something that I have sort of had re-emphasized to me through this process about how bloody good, kind, caring, reassuring words can be when you're in pain and you're frustrated and pissed off. Because, you know, there were some nights, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, couldn't sleep. I've been pacing the living room, 
And I've been on my social media, I've been reading the comments, and I've been seeing these nice, kind, caring, encouraging, supportive comments, and it's kept me going, it's kept me motivated. And so, you know, I, I, I am now using this as an experience to try and stress to all healthcare professionals, when you see somebody in pain, don't be a knobhead, right? Be kind, be caring, be compassionate, mm-hmm. be supportive, be encouraging, because it really fucking helps, all right? Don't undervalue how much it really does help just to put a, say a kind word to somebody when they're really in a lot of pain and distress. So, you know, I'm going to say thank you to everybody who's done that because I've got so many messages. I tried to respond to everybody, but I couldn't. So if you have sent me a message, thank you very much. And if I haven't got back to you, it's not because I'm arrogant. It's just normally they get lost in my DMs, but thanks for that. But then I've also seen the other side, which I wasn't quite expecting. Don't get me wrong. I'm not naive enough to think you post something on bloody social media. You're not going to get some hateful troll popping up saying something stupid because that happens all the time. Do you know what, though? I was actually surprised because when I first saw my experience of you, I feel like, did you post the video into our better clinicians group first? Yes. Did you post it there? Yes. So you posted there and I just happened to be, it was quite late here in Australia and I just happened to be online and I saw that post come up and I watched it and it was truly awful watching the moment you got injured and I'm there and I'm I'm really rallying for the person that was kind of off to the side of your camera you're literally <laughs> down on one knee you can't move and this person's just la 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 going about it I'm like go and ask him if he's okay go and ask him if he's okay he's hurt himself yeah <laughs> so I, 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 didn't, I didn't even know he was there him. it was only when I looked back on the video I saw him there and I was the same thing I was like there's a guy there just looking at me screaming <laughs> And that's in actually come across to see if I'm okay, but there we go. So yeah, that was my that was my initial reaction, and then I was reading the the comments from our group. So shout out to Better Clinician Project, which is uh, something that Adam Meeks and Ben Cormack do, and it's freaking awesome. And uh, it's basically a mentoring program, and I learned so much just even being in that group is so cool. And I noticed that we, you know, we're all jumping on there like, oh my God, Meeks, are you okay? God, that was really hard to watch, you know. And then well, I remember someone wrote waiting for the, you know, just waiting for the the, the negative comments you're going to get about form or this or that. And I'm thinking surely no one, no one. So you've just watched someone hurt themselves. How would anyone come in and then what happened? Then it went to the gram, didn't it? Then you yeah. posted it on the gram and that's where things Blew escalated. Up. Yeah, and, mm. and as I said, I'm not naive enough to think that I wasn't going to get any negative comments because I said it's social media I and that just happens. Enough. But I was really, like you, taken aback at some of the – or the amount of so-called kind, caring, compassionate healthcare clinicians who are openly and not hiding – well, some anonymous ones, but most of them were quite happy and openly – to criticize, to attack, to abuse me for having this injury and daring to post it on social media. I I even had some people saying to me, you must be a really shit physio if you've got back pain. And I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) I go, good physios don't get back pain. I'm like, so do you think doctors never get fucking ill then? Do you think surgeons should never have surgery? What fucking planet are you living on? I said that we're all human beings at the start to begin with before we define ourselves by a profession. And last I checked, all human beings are prone to getting back fucking pain. 
And then I got all the attacks about, oh, yeah, but you don't know how to lift. You're shit. Mm. You, you can't lift and deadlift to save your life. You've got a really crap technique, and that's why you got injured. I'm like, one, I've been deadlifting near on weekly for 30 fucking years, thank you very much. This is my first serious episode of back pain. I think the benefits of doing regular deadlifts far outweigh this one episode of fucking negative aspects of it. And the other thing is, is they always go, well, this is how you deadlift. And they link me a fucking YouTube video or a, <laughs> an Instagram post that they've done of them doing some so-called pristine, perfect lifting technique. And I'm like, that's not even one times your body weight, sunshine. You're telling me I've got to do a two and a half times body weight deadlift looking the same as a fucking light dead weight, uh, deadlift, you know? It's like these people just don't live on the same fucking planet. These cockwombles are just like... Got absolute no fucking idea about how human movement is highly variable and dictated hugely by the task that you're doing. You know, and it and drives me low, crazy. Fucking when I, load specific. Oh. Load like you you don't de you don't deadlift 250 kilos this using the same technique. You lift a fucking broomstick. You know, it's like it's <laughs> <laughs> it drives me crazy. And I'm like, and I, I I put this into context for them when they say, but you should, you should. I'm like We'll put this into the similar context in another situation then. Do you expect everybody to jog the same way they sprint? Because that's that's what you're implying with doing a heavy deadlift versus a light deadlift. You're implying they've got to use the same strategy when the intensity changes. When you run, you can run very slowly and leisurely, or you can run maximally very, very fast. Compare the two different movement strategies that you do when you run leisurely versus when you're running maximally and tell me if they look the same. They will not look the same. So why should it be any different in any other situation? The simple answer is it's not. You'll use, as you said, a different strategy. But again, these mm. fucktards just do not get it. These absolute fucking vacuous fart bubbles who haven't read a research paper probably since 1986 are just... Ugh. So I get frustrated at that shit, yeah, Bunce, and I have been really disappointed at those comments coming at me and the attacks and the abuse because it just shows complete and utter ignorance as well as nastiness, and it does make me worry for the people mm. that they're seeing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the nastiness, it took me aback, even, even by some of that crew who I know <laughs> has, you know, I, I mean, as I said, I've pretty much been called a silly little girl before by one of that crew. Uh, and it's so I know their attitude, but to watch someone get hurt and then to go in on the attack to me is is bizarre. And those people, I don't think they deserve it. Like they shouldn't be healthcare providers. That's no. I, I mean that's the way I see it. Was it you, um, Meeks, that put up a research paper recently? Was it you that put up about? You know, if you're a jerk, you're a jerk. What, what was it? As yeah, like if it, you're about the internet. A lot of people blame bad behavior on the internet as the internet, and they say it's yeah. the internet that turns people bad uh, because of this social disinhibition effect, and it's bollocks. You're an arsehole before you get on the internet. All the internet does is amplify your assholeness. So right. again, when people say, "Oh, but this is just what they're they're like on the internet," I bet they're completely different face to face. It's bollocks. They're not. If you're a jerk on the internet, you're a jerk in face to face. There's, there's yeah. again, research studies have actually shown your behaviour just gets amplified by the internet. It doesn't actually affect it or change it. 
Mm-hmm. Raf, that we spoke about that in the trolling episode uh, yeah. that we did Trolls a, a while back. Fun. Trolls just want to have fun. It's basically the kid that likes to to pull the wings off the fly. You know, there's some sort of kick that that person also gets out of being mean on the internet, just being mean. They're, they're, <laughs> obviously, it's- they're obviously lacking something else in their life. That's the way I look at it. They're lacking something else in their life and, and they're, they're trying to fill this void by, you know, giving them some other sort of stimulus by doing this sort of shit. So, you know, I'm, I'm, it is their fault. I'm not going to take their responsibility away for their actions and their behaviour. No. But it's also based, I think, on the environment and the and the social situation that they're probably in. They probably haven't got, you know, kind, caring friends, family, all that sort of stuff. And so they often get resentful and say, look for this stimulus and attention elsewhere. So Meeks, you know, what's what do you see as the way forward? You know, we've got, there's a lot of, you know, from where I sit, there's a lot of tension within the physio profession. I think there's, I think it's probably, we can expand that. So there's a lot of tension within the allied health world mm. between the, you know, more biopsychosocial evidence-based, guideline-based, you know, tribe on one side and the biomedical slash biomechanical tribe on the other side. Uh, and it, it seems, you know, from the literature, it seems like the the old guard are still the majority, um, but not no longer an overwhelming majority. And that then the, the new, you know, which, you know, you quoted 17 to 20 years, well, you know, biopsychosocial practice has been enshrined in guidelines since around 2000. So we're just about at the 20-year mark. So, you know, it's always time for a change of guard. Um, you know, what do you see as the way forward? Because there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of opportunity for conflict. Yeah, patience and persistence is what I tell people. Is just, you know, keep, I know it gets frustrating and I know yeah, you do need breaks from it, but just keep doing what you're doing, you know, just keep promoting the positive messages, keep promoting the research, keep challenging the bullshit, keep, you know, questioning the nonsense and just be patient and persistent and 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 things will change slowly, gradually, you know, change just happens at a glacial rate. You know, very rarely in, in life, in human history, does things happen dramatically that change overnight. So with these types of things, as I say, you just, you've got to be dogged. You've got to be, you know, have a bit of a hard skin and you just got to keep patient and persistent and just keep trudging away at it. And and you've got to manage conflict, but you've still got to deal with conflict because you're not going to escape it. And a lot of people told me, well, if you change your attitude and you change your tone, you're probably going to be more successful. I'm like, that's bollocks because I've done that and I've tried that and it just gets ignored and nothing gets happened. So you've got to find that balance of being able to, you know, say something that grabs attention, that you can stand your ground, that you can defend and you can manage the conflict that will come from that. And um, yeah, that's that's the way forward. It just needs patience and persistence. And um, what are some of your strategies for for dealing with that negativity in that conflict? Whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and a no, hot bath. <laughs> yeah, whiskeys and hot baths, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, okay, great, folks. You heard it first here. <laughs> <laughs> and and walks. Weren't you? You were doing some 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 good some walking. Yeah, as well, my right? my three a.m. walks around my village were. Uh, yeah, it was good. It was uh, say, and that's one of the things I have learned through this episode as well is that all the pharmacological medications that are so called pain killers are not pain killers. Um, you know, I, I went and saw my GP and got some pain meds because I was in a lot of pain. 
and they prescribed me the neuropathic ones and they made minimal difference. They hardly touched it at all. And they say the only thing that really significantly made immediate and drastic impact on my pain was a real hot fucking bath. And I've fallen back. I haven't had a bath for 20 odd years. You know, I shower regularly. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a scuzzy, dirty git. But I, 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 am, I am not a bath person. I have never, never really found any sort of, you know, enjoyment in a hot bath. But since I've had this back problem i've been having regular hot soaks and it is the only thing that has made a significant immediate impact on my pain it just reduces obviously the muscle tension and it just distracts away from the pain with a heat stimulus uh, and again gives me instant relief and lasts for probably two or three hours afterwards as well so right. again i tell clinicians do not and, and patients as well do not underestimate the simpler more easily accessible ways to manage pain rather than reaching for the medications all the time um but yeah no back to that point i think you know when it, i've forgotten what the point was actually now negativity and conflict you know yeah, how, do you, how, do you, how do you keep positive how do you keep mentally healthy pick your battles you know that's the thing is, is you, you can't you can't respond i mean it depends on the size of your following and how many comments you get and all that sort of stuff but I, I have realized for my own sanity, my own mental health, and to not get it on top of me is to is to not um, respond, acknowledge, you know, the vast majority of the information, the, the shit that I get. So it's about, you know, being sensible, not letting it overtake your life, finding that balance, you know, of, of, of challenging and questioning things. Uh, but once you start to find it having detrimental effects and if you're worrying about it at one o'clock in the morning and you're finding you're still thinking about it three days afterwards, that's not happy or healthy place to be. So, again, just try to, you know, moderate your engagement with it and don't let it take over your life. Try to, as you say, find the balance of the of the yin and the yang, the good and the bad, the positive and the negative and all things. Do you I'm find... Really Oh sorry. oh, sorry, you go. You go, oh, go I was just going to say, do you find writing your blogs cathartic? Mm. Is that is that a way? I'm just curious. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it very much allows me to have this sort of rant and be able to yeah, put my jumbled thoughts and frustrations down into some sort of form and, uh, formation and organisation and uh, way of trying to get things out in a bit more of a structured way. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I just, it's something I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not really a writer at all, but sometimes I think when I get worked up about things, I mean, this for me, the podcast, I'm finding the podcast a, a good outlet, yeah. a cathartic outlet. And I've just kind of been toying with the idea lately of maybe, maybe I just need to write some stuff down too and just. It is, it is beneficial. I wouldn't class myself as yeah. a writer either, Bunce. You know, I always had that, you know, um, imposter syndrome about doing blogs and writing because I, I don't feel like I've got a good writing style and all that sort of business. But um, it is cathartic, you know, and I just find, you know, just having a brain dump and just, you know, yeah. free writing, you know, just getting on the keyboard and, and you just go there for half an hour and you just put everything down that you're thinking that's going in your head and it comes out as a bloody mess. And then you yeah. go back and you just sort of format it and edit it. And it is it is cathartic doing that. Yeah. Mm. Might give it a crack. Um, there's, there's, I just want to ask you this, Adam, it's kind of totally non sequitur with, with what we've been talking about, but... Uh, I've been thinking recently about, you know, what's inspired me, who's inspired me along my journey and, and two things stood out. Like there are heaps of people who have inspired me you know, and continue to inspire me. But one I think has been really formative for me. And this was like so many years ago, decades, two or more decades ago, um, a, a, a 
kind of acquaintance of mine, friend of mine, now wife, um, was having coffee with a friend of his and she was telling him about how she could see auras, right? And she was saying, oh, you've got, I can see your aura right now. You know, you've got kind of a purple aura around you. Um, and and he, like, in in all innocence, like in all genuineness, he said, oh, huh, I'm wearing a yellow jumper. I wonder if this yellow cigarette lighter has a purple aura as well. And he held up, he's like, oh, yeah, I can see a purple aura around that. And, and it was just this spirit of like, oh, just total childlike curiosity and critical thinking. And, and I've ever since I've tried to emulate that, you know, that just asking that kind of really basic question. And so that's been an inspiration to me. And I've never told him about that, but now I think about it, I will tell him about it. He probably doesn't remember that, <laughs> anything about it. Um, and there've been many other people who've inspired me along, along the way since then. Uh, and you're one of them. And what inspires me about what you do is you, you say the things and ask the questions that many of us are thinking but are too scared to voice because we think like, oh, I'm the only weirdo who thinks that or questions that and everybody else must understand something I don't understand because it doesn't make sense to me but I must just be dumb. And then you ask the question and then I hear you ask the question. I'm like, oh, no, that really doesn't make sense, does it? It's kind of fucking stupid. (laughs) And so, you know, that's been an inspiration to me and, you know, if you those of you listening to this podcast will be familiar that that's what we do every week on this podcast is we ask those questions. Um, so I wonder like, you know, what or who has kind of inspired you? Great question. So there's been a couple of people throughout my life that have uh, influenced me. One's my stepfather um, who um, looked after me and my sister when my original dad fucked off and took us under his wing um, and very much influenced me as a as a young boy and young man growing up. Um, he was a paratrooper, um, taught me a lot about discipline, taught me a lot about, you know, questioning, you know, authority, but respectfully, uh, because that's what he had to do in his line of work. Um, and that's what led me eventually into the military as well. So I've got a lot to thank him for. Um but also, again, clinically with regards to various different things, I think Richard Feynman is somebody that I very much in the uh, late 80s very much was enamored and awed by. So if you don't know Richard Feynman, he was the physicist who was responsible for many discoveries in the world of physics, but also was quite in, um, influential in the Challenger disaster as well in the inquest in the Challenger disaster and he was the one that actually managed to find out about these O-rings being the failure point and managed to ask these difficult awkward questions to these um, uh, panels about why these things happened and what caused it and everything along those lines but Richard Feynman was an a really astounding critical thinker and he mm. was quite open and honest in his ignorance in about how he was quite happy to go around and tell people and he was he was keen on promoting it and say it's okay to say I don't know you know and that's Wasn't one of his famous saying I'd rather have questions without answers than answers that can't be questioned absolutely so it's okay not yeah. to know things and as you said that other quote are two of my most favorite things and I've taken that through life you know i'm very much happy to always you know say i don't know something i'm like i don't know something and it is awkward don't get me wrong it, it, it's not pleasant to put your hand up and show your ignorance in front of other people but the more you do it the easier it gets 
Uh, and the more you start to realize, like you said, there's other people that are thinking the same thing and nobody wants to do it. It's that, or, you know, that emperor's clothes phenomenon. Nobody wants to tell the emperor that he's got no fucking clothes on until one person does. And then everybody goes, yeah, he's got no fucking clothes on. <laughs> so, you know, it just takes that sort of little leap of faith, that little step to say, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. Can you explain it a bit more to me? Can you tell me what I'm missing here? doesn't make sense and it is uncomfortable but it does help you astronomically uh, and it stops you making more errors and fucking up i've realized as well <laughs> so i very much appreciate that and i found it beneficial from that point of view but yeah questioning and challenging and you know critiquing and everything you, it should be part and parcel of life and people tell me well that's quite a negative way to go you don't you trust anybody you're going through life very skeptical and cynical and i'm like yeah, but it actually—it's actually a positive thing. It stops you, as like I said, it stops you making more mistakes and errors through life. So, but be, and skepticism's not the same as being cynical. You know, being cynical is like believing the worst of people, and and things are going to turn out for the worst. And being skeptical is requiring proof for assertions. They're not the same thing. Yeah, I one guess of it, my. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, Adam. One of my favorite takeaways from your shoulder course that I did with you was, and I can remember it quite clearly, was get comfortable with confidently expressing uncertainty. Did yeah, I paraphrase it, that right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I Again, something I try to stress to all clinicians is like, there's a lot of things that we don't know definitive answers for about why people have shoulder pain, back pain, knee pain, little finger pain. There's a lot of times when you do a thorough, detailed, full assessment, and you'll be still, if you've got knowledge and experience you'll be like can't quite actually pin down exactly what's the cause of this problem and so that needs to be explained to somebody so again it's managing this uncertainty in a confident way it's being mm. confident in uncertainty uh, and it's a tricky skill to master you know because one of the things i find that if you're trying to explain to somebody why they've got pain and problems and you're a little bit fumbling you're a little bit you know dithering you're a little bit mm -hmm, that isn't accepted very well. The patient will think this person doesn't know what's going on. They've got no idea. But if you are explaining clearly, calmly, compassionately, that you've done your due diligence, there's nothing here clearly problematic, serious or sinister. However, trying to isolate exactly what's going on from a structural point of view is difficult. It is uncertain. But again, the good news is, is it doesn't matter because it's not going to influence what we know about the prognosis and how to manage this. That goes across so much better. That is much more well accepted and tolerated by people in pain. Um, so, yeah, I, I very much do say, you know, manage and tolerate uncertainty and deal with it confidently for it to be accepted. Hey, Bunce. Love that. Hey, yeah. Who or what's in, inspired you? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Uh, well, my dad would be. Would, would be one of my, my biggest inspirations. My dad's phenomenal. Uh, shout out to – my dad gets a shout out pretty, pretty – Shout out, David. Shout out, shout out, David. What a legend. Uh, yeah, he's, his life story and then what he went on to do and everything is, is quite phenomenal and he will be on an episode of Elephants so everyone will get to, get to learn all about that. But he uh, continues to inspire me on the daily – Raf, you've been a huge, you've been pivotal in my education and uh, my career and how I see the world and honing my critical thinking skills and 
my confidence and so a hundred billion percent you meeks i bloody love you meeks it meeks is a huge inspo to me meeks uh you know ben cormack greg layman are all big big inspirations to me and then the pilates stratosphere i mean i could keep i've got so many inspirations we've got jenna we've got john gary you know but yeah but for sure, uh, my dad and you have been huge in regards to my education and my outlooks on the world. So, yeah. It's good to have lots of sources of inspirations rather than just one. Don't don't fall for the guru effect. That's also something else I say to people. If you've only got one person that you respect and revere, you're probably ending up probably going down the wrong pathway if you're just following one person because that that's guru worshipping. Yeah. Yeah. But I love – and I love it and I'm so – grateful to all the information that you know both you Raph and you Adam just put out so regularly you're really helping to educate the masses you know and and Adam your point where it's like well (laughs) what do we do how do we keep going well it's being patient and persistent and continually calling out the bullshit and continually putting out there the non-bullshit, right? <laughs> Putting the evidence out there and keeping doing that. And uh, the the open access way that you're both doing that is is pretty phenomenal because that stuff takes – I mean, Adam, you and you, Raph, you both are creating so many infographics and all of these things. How do you guys do that? <laughs> I do honestly look at that and I go, man, for me to put out one post on Instagram, I usually just put up some, I don't know, a pretty time-lapse video or something because it's just, it's really quick. I don't have to write all the copy. Here are you both, you know, putting up all the the links to the research and this and that. I, I mean, you're doing a good thing. You're doing a really good thing. Yeah, I, I like Talks the ones you that you've been doing, Rafe, recently, these elephant party ones that you've been doing. Uh, sorry, the breathe education ones, sorry, you've been doing. Been really good recently, mate. So, yeah, what's your secret? Um, well, uh Firstly, Chloe, for me to do a a time lapse video would be fucking hell. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. I wouldn't even know where to start. What button do I press on the phone? You know, any of that. So I, I can see that taking six to eight hours for me to, to film a thirty second video. Okay, um, so we've all got our strengths. This is good. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> um, well, it's funny because. Um, I've actually been posting on social media quite a while, but I just didn't understand how to communicate properly before. Because I used to just post a video of me doing squats or something, and then I'd put, put a few factoids underneath it. You know, don't underestimate how important like, that is, though. Do not underestimate yeah. that. <laughs> everyone, everyone on social media was like, "Yeah, whatever." Um, but um, I was chatting with uh, our general manager, my friend Nicole, um, a few weeks back, and. I was saying to her, like, oh, you know, where do I come up with stuff for social media? And, she's, and, and she was like, well, you write a lecture every week, don't you? I'm like, yeah, I write a lecture every week. She's like, how many slides in each section? I'm like, oh, about 85. And she's like, well, you know, like, <laughs> you could use some of those. So um, I'm, quite, I'm kind of feeling like it's just about time to wind up. But do you, is there anything that, I, that either of you really wants to, to talk about? No, I think we've covered most things. Been good chatting about various different stuff. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yes, Chloe? yes. Uh, I mean, I, it would go down a whole nother. <laughs> I'd probably have to keep Meeks here for another half an hour. I, I guess the one thing I would like to touch on, seeing as we've got you, is 
And this is something that comes up quite a bit with our diploma students when they're thinking about if I'm going to do an assessment online, a a one-on-one assessment, a one-on-one session online, and how to effectively build therapeutic alliance and, you know, it's like, can you build as as an effective a therapeutic alliance online as you can in a face-to-face setting? And if so, how? And I know that both you and Ben have done some cool stuff on that in regards to the Better Clinician Project. And I truly believe with the way the world is now, that it really is the way forward. There are, I mean, there's always going to be face-to-face, but now it's really opened up. I mean, I know that, Raf, you had a you had a session with Adam, which is just freaking cool right so what are some have you just got some without it turning into you know a whole nother podcast episode uh have you got some tips what do you think can, what's can your I jump in and, and give you my experience of doing a session with adam getting 180 feedback uh, now live feedback i would love you to <laughs> well I, I can tell you my experience of how adam built uh rapport and therapeutic alliance with me he seemed genuinely pleased to be doing the session with me. He asked me questions about what was important to me and what I wanted from the session and why that was important to me. And he, then he shut up and listened to my answers and he didn't cut me off. He seemed to be paying attention to what I was saying. He was looking at me and nodding and going, uh-huh, you know, at appropriate junctures and every now and then he'd ask a question that showed that he'd been listening um and at, after a while I felt like he'd truly heard you know he pulled stuff out of me that I didn't even know was you know there just by asking him why is that important and what do you want to get back to and all of that stuff and then he uh gave me his his views on, you know, his ideas, his thoughts. And he said, okay, well, I'm not quite sure about this, but this seems to be likely and that might be the case, but let's try this first. And, uh, you know, here's the plan, you know, how does that sound to you? You know, and then uh, he asked me like, okay, so can you just explain, you know, tell me what your understanding of the plan is? And I was like, yep, here's what I reckon. He's like, yeah, almost right, but you missed out this bit or whatever. And then, uh, yeah, I felt like that was, I mean, and so I, I think, I mean, I'm sorry to if I'm still in your thunder here, Meeks, but I think those are just communication skills and like online, offline, whatever. It's like, it's, it's the same, same thing. I don't see there's any difference. No, I agree, mate. And thanks for, for giving me that feedback. It's, uh, it's quite pleasing to know that I'm doing the things that I'm going around pontificating and preaching to other people to do so it's glad that i'm actually practicing what i preach um but no like you said there mate it is everything that builds therapeutic alliance and a good relationship and trust and rapport with somebody is everything that can be done online as it can be done face to face the only thing you can't do is obviously touch somebody that's the only difference uh, and i'm not gonna under play the importance of touch because touch can be therapeutic and it can be reassuring and it can be demonstrating you know care and compassion of course it can and it can help relieve pain and discomfort when you apply it in manual therapy treatments but it's not essential and it's not necessary to help build a good relationship with somebody that's in pain and distress it's just part of the picture and it is a small part of the picture 
But yeah, the main things, as you said there, is is shutting up. It's listening. It's showing genuine interest in the person's problems and their concerns and their fears and their worries. It's about, you know, letting them have that space to express themselves and get out what they want to get out and ask any questions that they want. It's about demonstrating, you know, those nonverbal skills, like you said, you know, eye contact that's not too intense. You're you're giving appropriate little signals to say that you've heard something. You're validating the person's words and the language they're using. And I find by reflecting things back at them is is a good way of doing that, using their terminology and language. You know, sometimes it's good to say, like, okay, just correct me if I'm wrong, but you said this, this, and this. Is that correct? Or so what I'm hearing is that you've got this and this and this going on. So these things, again, just give an individual some appreciation that you've heard what they've said. Uh, and again, you know, it's just taking it from there and just finding out what their, their wants are, their needs are, their goals are, their desires are, and then appropriately giving your recommendations and opinions based on what you've learned and read and your clinical experience and you know, giving the, the giving array of selection and options to the person, because remember, at the end of the day, a healthcare professional's role is not to choose for the patient. The patient is the one that is ultimately going to make the decision of what they perceive to be best for their situation based on the full information that a healthcare professional has presented to them. It's a shared decision making process. You know, the clinician guides them through it. And I tend to say, you know, put it in order of preference. You know, these are the things that have got the highest rates of evidence and the most likely chance of success with your current situation. But there's also options B, C, D, E and F as well that could probably also do similar things or slightly less effective things if you want to consider that. So that that's pretty much how I use online consultations. Again, a lot of people just want to have somebody to talk to, to, to give their opinions and views on things and to be reassured that what they're doing and what they're they're thinking of doing is the right way to proceed. And that can all be done, as I say, online. It doesn't have to be done face-to-face. -face. Fantastic. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks, well, Elephants. I've enjoyed this. This has been fun. I, I normally <laughs> get a bit podcast fatigued, but I haven't talking to you guys. Uh, so thanks for that. It's been, been joyous. Do you want to hear my favourite joke about an elephant? Yes, please. Love to. To finish off. How do you raise a baby elephant? How? With a fucking forklift. <laughs> My dad's going to enjoy that one. <laughs> what a great way to end the podcast. Thought you'd oh, like that. That's brilliant. Thanks for coming on, Meeks. It's so good to see you. Yeah, you too, guys. And uh, hope everything oh, goes well over there eventually with the old uh, shit show and the plague that's going on at the moment. To play. Yeah, I've had my double jab, so I've done my done my bit. Good stuff. Good talk. Yeah, Good talk. cool. Hey, imagine this. When you meet a new client, you know exactly what to do. You're confident because you already have a plan. A plan that's so powerful and versatile that you can use it with any client. Big clients, small clients. Clients with pain in weird body parts. Clients with diagnoses ending in itis, osis, or opathy. Clients with neurogenic pain, whatever that is. Well, actually, neuro just means nerve, and genic means produced by. So neurogenic pain is just pain that is produced by nerves. Anyway, clients with balance issues. Clients with pain in any body part or in many body parts. All with this one weird trick. 
no, I'm just joking. There is no one weird trick, of course, that's going to solve everybody's problems. But if you come and study with us in our Diploma of Clinical Pilates, you will genuinely learn how to help people with all of those issues that I mentioned, plus many more. You'll learn a deep understanding of how the human body works and of modern pain science and evidence-based best practice. And you'll learn how to apply that knowledge to genuinely help people with their musculoskeletal issues. This is a one-year in-depth program. I would love to have you in the program. It's 100% online, no travel required at all. You can do it totally from your lounge room. If you're interested, I'd love to have you. Come and join us. Click on the link in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing you in class. Go on, click on the link.